what's up, y'all? Alan Kenny, host of the Blatant Homers and Podcast here. We are recording this on November 15th, um, 2018. My guest today is Matt Zemick. We are going to talk just a little bit about uh, some of the big stories that are, you know, kind of percolating out there in the college football uh, sphere with, uh, you know, just a couple weeks left to go in the regular season. Let's go ahead and welcome him on. Matt, how are you doing? Doing well, Alan. Thanks for having me. Awesome, awesome. Well, um, so, you know, kind of looking around here, now I asked you to come up with maybe three things that you're watching. You're always good at capturing kind of the big picture stuff here. So why don't we go ahead and just kick it off there. What, what's, your, what's the first one you want to talk about? Well, I think in terms of, in terms of like the most important story facing college football on the field in the weeks that we have left, Alan, I think the biggest story is what happens if the Big Ten champion does not get in the playoff, because it would be the third straight year that will have happened. And I can't imagine that Jim Delaney would be terribly pleased with that development, and I can't imagine that he would sit around and do nothing about it. So that particular scenario, should it come to pass, and it's entirely realistic, uh, if, you know, if Notre Dame gets in, you can really envision that happening. Notre Dame and Oklahoma particularly, if they get in, they could crowd out the Big Ten champion, especially if it's Ohio State. Um, so if that happens, you know, will there be some unrest? Will there be uh, a desire to uproot the current system, uh, you know, as early as possible or perhaps earlier than any of us think? That, that really, to me, stands out as the big on-field competitive balance story in college football. No, that's an interesting one because two years ago, right, we did get a big a, a Big Ten team in the playoff, right, even though it wasn't the champion, right? I mean, Ohio State. Yeah, wasn't the champion, but still, a three-year streak, that would be pretty notable. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I think, though, I don't know. At what point do you just say to some of these teams or, or people that are complaining about, uh, you know, not seeing their teams. I mean, you know, the Pac-12, for example, probably won't get a team in this year, right? So, I mean, at what point do you just say you need to get better? I mean, it's an interesting question. I, I think that it's just interesting that, you know, two years ago the Big Ten was, uh, at least in the regular season, you know, the ACC crushed it in the bowls two years ago. But the Big Ten was viewed as the best team during the – the best conference during the 2016 regular season. And that, that has very quickly – shifted uh in the, in the span of two years so uh you know i you know on the merits alan your point is well made and well taken but i think that uh you know when when the pac-12 doesn't get a champion in you know n nobody bats an eyelash but to see the big 10 mm -hmm. uh, get crowded out of the table i think that would create a different kind of conversation in the sport whether or not the big 10 has a legitimate gripe uh yeah that's a different conversation uh and I think, you know, last year would really uh, crystallize the Big Ten's argument uh, more than this year would uh, mm -hmm. since Alabama, you know, was not even a division champion and still got in over Ohio State. But nevertheless, in the larger context, uh, you know, that, that would make more national waves yeah. than the Pac-12 getting left out. I mean, it's a, it's a very different conversation because it's the Big Ten. So I'm not really – I'm not referring to the larger – notion of you know having two power five conferences left out 
because of Notre Dame. It's more of the Big Ten particular. So if that if that yeah. point was unclear, that's what I'm trying to emphasize here. Got it. Got it. Well, so I mean, let's say you're, you're Jim Delaney. This happens, um, and you want to raise a fuss about it. I mean, what are you gonna? What's gonna be your talking point? What are you gonna say? Uh, what what are I guess what are the solutions or alternatives that you're going to offer? Uh, I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think what you might see from Delaney, uh, be, and and I I see I don't think that the conference commissioners are ready to ditch their conference championship games because those games make money and they're good TV inventory at this time of year. Uh, I my, I don't sense that Delaney would ditch that, but. You know, given what we see right here uh, this season, I think that Delaney's first chess move, you know, if he can't overturn the whole system, which I don't think he really, he realistic, I don't think he could do that right away. But I think the first move he could make would be to adopt the Big 12 model of top two finish, uh, play in the conference championship game instead of division uh, champions. And I know that everyone's going to say it, and it's a legitimate point, but nevertheless, uh, Ohio State and Michigan might play back-to-back weeks for many, many years. And, and people might get tired of that, and people might think it was boring, but if we're only focused on getting a team into the playoff, it's a move that would make sense for the Big Ten. And so that would probably be Delaney's first step. Someone trying to copy the Big Twelve—that would be uh, one of these big conferences. That would be a rarity. I know, I know, right? Such a 2018 thing to happen, wouldn't it? Oh, totally, totally, yeah, absolutely. All right, so moving on, what's what's your second story that you're watching? Uh, Which Cinderella program, or if not Cinderella, simply a non-traditional football school? is going to get its mitts on a New Year's Six Bowl invitation. You know, we, we've seen North Carolina State, which has never, ever made a New Year's Six Bowl in its history. Uh, it had its big chance, and then it lost to Wake Forest at home on national television. We saw Kentucky have its big chance for a New Year's Six Bowl, and then it got blasted by Tennessee. So now we have... Syracuse, which gets its shot against Notre Dame, and then also the following week against Boston College. Syracuse and and Boston College are both very much in the running for a New Year's Six Bowl. And then, of course, through the gateway afforded by the conference championship games, we could have Pitt playing for a New Year's Six Bowl. We could have Utah playing for a New Year's Six Bowl. We could have Washington State playing for a New Year's Six Bowl. So uh, those are – and actually Arizona State isn't even eliminated from that particular uh, conversation at this point. So will any of these schools, which don't usually find themselves uh, center stage on January 1 or in any of the uh, elite bowl games on offer, will they be able to uh, cross the threshold and uh, get to the altar and find their happy day? You know what? Another one that uh, you might have overlooked, I think, is uh, Iowa State, right? Uh, they might be playing in the Big 12 championship. Not out. Yeah. Which, that is uh, correct. Yep. Yeah, that's a, that's a uh, you know, I think that they're somewhere there around like 15 in the, um, you know, uh, kind of BCS, or not BCS, gosh, what am I talking about? College football playoff rankings right now, you know. I mean, 
I, are there any teams kind of lurking there in that 10 to 25 range that you think are, are could uh, could cause some problems here in the last couple of weeks? Any anything any teams kind of stand out to you there? Well, I think the team that we need to be mindful of, and I don't say this because I've spent much of the past 25 years in Seattle, but you know Washington when Washington beat. Stanford, and it was a game. It was on Pac-12 Network, so not many people saw it. But when Washington beat Stanford, one thing it specifically did, beyond staying in the Pac-12 North race, the, the the particular detail about that win is that that game was the final game before Washington's bye week. Now, this is something that people across the nation really probably haven't noticed about Washington's schedule this year. But Washington's bye week didn't come until this past weekend, November 10. And there's a part of me that thinks that Washington's underwhelming performances through the month of October had something to do with not having an off week throughout that whole stretch. You know, really, if, we're, if, if a team's schedule is well-balanced, it's going to have a bye week somewhere between weeks five through eight, you know, in the middle third of the season. Getting a bye week on, in the second week of November, that's much too late for any team. And so I think that Washington, certainly in that loss to Cal, the 12-10 loss to Cal, uh, was very worn out. And so now the Huskies finally got their rest. This week is Oregon State at home, which is basically a layup. And so that, that could be a very physically fresh Washington team that goes to Washington State on uh, Thanksgiving Friday. And, and so Washington, for all of its struggles – has lost only two games in the Pac-12. Wazoo's lost one. So if Washington wins that uh, Wazoo game, it wins the Pac-12 North and would probably have a very rested team, possibly with some players uh, who were injured for most of the year and are finally getting healthy. So um, it's not just because I'm a Seattle uh, member of blatant homerism, to use a a term and, and kind of put a twist on it, but really, Washington is a team that could get back onto the national radar uh, for a lot of the reasons that I just mentioned. Yeah, you know, that's been an interesting year. I, I kind of, I was a little bit um, uh, more skeptical about Washington heading into this season, I think, than it seemed like a lot of people were, which is kind of zigging when everybody else is zagging. But, um, uh, yeah, it just, that... The quarterback position there, Browning just really he never overwhelmed me and, and he really hasn't hasn't played particularly well this year, it seems like. He hasn't, and one of the ironies is that uh, his best game of the year was in one of the biggest games of the year. It was the game at Oregon. Mm-hmm. And of course that's the game in which the old Chris Peterson bugaboo, a kicker missing a, a you know, a thirty seven yard field goal at the end of regulation is what ultimately did in Washington. You know, Browning has been really a, an average to below average quarterback this season in which he made plays out of the pocket. He made plays throwing downfield. He generally did the kinds of things that he hasn't been doing most of the time this season. So that's kind of a bitter irony uh, for Washington this season. The fact that, you know, that the Cal game, it was awful. But, uh, you know, as, as luck would have it, it really didn't affect Washington's division title chances. Last year's stumble uh, against Arizona State was much more profound uh, along those lines. So it's kind of interesting how 
the nuances of a season uh, have uh, worked their way in at Washington relative to Jake Browning's performances. Uh, his best performance was in a game the team didn't win, uh, and and uh, the other disaster that he suffered didn't hijack the team's uh, conference title chances. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point about uh, Chris Peterson and the kickers too. It's uh, funny how history repeats itself that way. So let's um, let's uh, move on then. What's what's a third story? Something something big you're keeping an eye on. Well, because I'm in the West, you know, I, I, I feel I should talk about Western stories, and so I have to go to USC and the coaching situation there. It's, it's a very fascinating coaching situation for a number of reasons. One is that the coach, the, the past two seasons, Clay Helton, uh, he made BCS uh, or BCS, New Year's Six Bowls each of the last two seasons, winning one of them. He won a Pac-12 title. Those are things that USC had not done since Pete Carroll, and yet, if you were to ask me, Alan, right now, is Clay Helton going to survive uh, into 2019? I'd have to say no, because he has completely lost the plot this year, and without Sam Darnold, you know, he seems to be lost at sea. And it really does seem that the conventional wisdom we had uh, two years ago, that Darnold was saving Helton's job, as opposed to uh, Helton, you know, you know, turning Darnold into a great player, that conventional wisdom has been affirmed, and now it seems as though even though Helton, you know, did such a good job the previous two seasons, we're, we're really seeing that it was much more a product of the quarterback than the coach. And I think that you know, unless unless Helton beats both UCLA and Notre Dame, it's not one either or; it has to be both and. Unless he wins both games, I really don't see him surviving. And I know that, uh, and this is something that you know your listeners might not be aware of, but uh, you know in most parts of the country, but out in the West, people know that USC's uh, president—that is a, an unsettled situation mm-hmm. in terms of uh, whom the the president will be. So there is a, a very unsettled administrative landscape there. And then one thing that a lot of people probably do know about USC from past coaching searches is that the Trojans are very reluctant to hire someone who goes outside of uh, a pro-style offense and student body right mm-hmm. and all the things that John McKay delivered in the 1970s. The people at USC really value a certain aesthetic in, the, in their football product, and Pete Carroll really fit that aesthetic. Pete Carroll didn't fit the insider culture, uh, at USC, you know, he was very big on changing the culture of the of the locker room, but the football aesthetic was there. Uh, that's why he got in the door back in the year 2000. So this 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 uh, Lynn Swan, the new AD replacing Pat Hayden, he's a member of the USC family. I think the decision to hi- to fire Helton is not going to be that hard for him. Uh, even with the unsettled administrative reality of USC's uh, internal politics. But the bigger drama on top of that will be if he takes someone who has a, a style and an approach that go outside the normal USC aesthetic. So for that reason, it's, it's a really huge story in my mind because it's not just about whether Helton gets hired or whether he gets fired or not. It's about what kind of stylistic choice does USC make and will the school be willing uh, to go, you know, against the grain and go outside its normal box of thinking. So that that's a really fascinating thing to me. 
So if Helton does get canned, uh, how quickly do they move on hiring Jeff Fisher or Jack Del Rio? That, you know, so people, people inside USC, if you ask a lot of them, I'm not going to say it's unanimous, but a lot of them do think that Jack Del Rio is going to be the guy. Uh, I mean, that, that's, just, that's just from talking to various USC people on Twitter. Uh, that, that, that was the name that kept coming up last Saturday night and right after the loss to Cal. So it really it's striking that you would come up with that those names so quickly because that's what so many people in and around the school are thinking right now. Well, I mean, when you can hire a coach who, from what I understand, probably I don't think he has any college coaching experience and was a uh, subpar you know, NFL head coach, you know, you, I mean, you don't hesitate, right? I mean... The funny part is that I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The funny part is that also sounds a lot like Pete Carroll. So, you know, I I get the I get the irony in that. But um, yeah, you know, I think that uh, you never know. Swan could be the guy that finally kind of kicks them out of that hole. We need to. I mean, that's a very insular culture. You know, they've they've been very you know staying inside the USC family, and like you mentioned with the pro style offense. I, I wonder, at some point, they're going to have to get tired of that because the world is changing, you know? Absolutely. And with, with all the uncertainty around Pac-12 Network and, and, and Larry Scott and, and his relationship with the Pac-12 presidents, the very fact that USC is having a change of president, uh, one would think that that's going to you know, figure into how USC uh, you know, handles itself as a program in the 2020s. So, you know, that, that, that point you make about change is never has never been as germane as it is right now. Yeah, I think I think that's that's dead on. Absolutely. Well, you know, I've got you on here. Obviously, uh, most of my listeners here are Oklahoma fans. I'm an Oklahoma fan. What do you see? How do you see things going for the Sooners the rest of the way? Well, you know, I, I, I would like to think that they're not going to give up 35 points to Kansas. I think we can <laughs> uh, at least I think we can at least allow that. And then. West Virginia, you know, that is a, a team against which the Sooners have, have thrived. They've been able to ring up really big scores the last few years. Two years ago in Morgantown, where they're going to return this year, uh, it, you know, it was a snowstorm, and that didn't affect their offense one bit. Uh, so, you know, I, 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 sh- I would feel very confident about Oklahoma's ability to score as many points as it wants. But, oh, man, you know, on the other side of the ball, Will Greer against that defense, um, you know, it, it's just, you know, so this is something that Oklahoma fans have become used to. Uh, it's not something they want to become used to, but it is, it is simply the reality of where they stand. Uh, that West Virginia game has, you know, 56-49 written all over it. <laughs> and uh, it's just going to be Oklahoma's offense is going to have to avoid falling off that ledge. You know, again, in the Texas game, as people are aware, well aware of, you know, Murray just made a few turnovers, and when you do that in a in a game where you pretty much know it's going to be played in the 40s at least, if not in the 50s, you know that that's fatal. So uh, Murray just has to avoid uh, the big mistake. You know, maybe get piece together one or two red zone stops if you can, and maybe you know try at least be you know 50 percent getting off the field when the other team has third and 21, you know, mm. at least do it half the time, maybe not all the time. If you can at least do it half the time, you know, those little baby steps uh, can matter. So 
it, that 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 game should have at least 90 points. I would be stunned. Yes, stunned if OU WVU didn't have at least 90 points, and it's just a matter of not falling off that ledge. Yeah, yeah, I'll be interested to see what the forecast looks like for that game because that could uh, that could end up actually playing in OU's favor if it turns out to be kind of uh, rainy or sleet, you know, that type of thing, cold temps, because uh, of how well the Sooners run the ball. Yeah, I, I you you have been known to say that they should uh, run the, uh, what is it, the effing ball? <laughs> yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, and, then again, yeah. Uh, I then again. And I can't argue with that. Yeah, then again, uh, Lincoln Riley hasn't been paying attention to me, so maybe, I don't know, we'll, I guess we'll have to find out. So, hey, real quick, though, uh, college hoops have tipped off. Uh, anything, you know, kind of stick out to you from the first couple weeks of action? Well, um, I know that you love your Villanova Wildcats, and uh, like you, I did not see this freight train called Michigan coming. Uh, I, I, no one, I, I, I can't imagine anyone seeing Michigan laying down a, the thumping that it delivered earlier this week. So with, with Michigan beating Villanova handily on the road, Indiana whacking Marquette, Nebraska beating Seton Hall by 23, the Big Ten really is the, is the early story in college hoops. Mm-hmm. You've seen some SEC teams, uh, South Carolina earlier in the week uh, to Stony Brook, and then uh, earlier uh, on uh, Thursday in the Charleston Classic, Alabama got wiped out by Northeastern. So the SEC, a league which uh, you know is is hoping to become what the Big East was, you know, around uh, a decade ago, you know, a conference with 10, 11 NCAA tournament teams. The SEC has already taken some hits, and the Big Ten uh, has already scored some very significant victories. So that that's the early story of note in college hoops. Yeah. Wow. Michigan the other night. I mean, it. it... The the thing that really caught me off guard was the way they guarded uh, Villanova. I mean, you know, that's not a team that I normally think of as being a defensive powerhouse in, in hoops, but uh, they uh, they really came out and just, you know, really just didn't give Villanova an inch when uh, they had the ball. Yes, and, you know, so John Beeline, you know, he, he and the Michigan program struggled for a few years after – that the uh, the Trey Burke Mitch McGarry mm-hmm. years in 2013 2014 when they you know made the title game in 13 made the Elite Eight in 14 then 15 and 16 uh, and portions of 2017 they struggled uh, last year he he got an assistant uh, Luke Yaklich who is basically his you know we now use this term in, in basketball defensive coordinator he was basically mm-hmm. the new the defensive coach. And Yaklich has uh, transformed the way Michigan defends. And Michigan did not shoot the three well uh, in most of its NCAA tournament games last year. You know, it had the uh, the Sweet 16 game against A&M when everything was going in, but but against Montana in the R64, Houston in the round of 32, uh, Florida State in the Elite Eight, and Loyola in the national semis. Michigan in all of those games. Defense is what won each of those contests for the Wolverines. So it's clear that their defensive edge, their understanding of how to play together at that end of the floor, has carried into this new season. Is Kansas going to win the Big 12 again? Uh, well, if the Pope is still Catholic, <laughs> and I think he is, then yes. Matt, let everybody know where, uh, where you've been writing lately and uh, where they can find all your stuff. 
Uh, I'm still doing the Patreon thing, patreon.com slash Zemeck. And, uh, you know, for any, for any Oklahomans or anybody else who uh, loves tennis, I write, I write and co-edit a site uh, called Tennis with an Accent at tennisaccent.com and on Twitter at accent underscore tennis. I co-host a, a podcast with a partner of mine, so I do that. And uh, I also contribute stories to a site called Florida Football Insiders, which covers the various uh, NFL and college teams. I focus on the college side. I'm one of the would be college columnists for FloridaFootballInsiders.com. All right. Well, Matt, thanks again so much for coming on and uh, chopping it up with me uh, tonight. Hey, really appreciate it, Alan. And, uh, you know, just buckle up for another uh, 56-49 mm-hmm. uh, Oklahoma game against West Virginia. I don't know if I can take too many more of those, man. I mean, I know that uh, OU's had a lot of them th- through the years, but uh, it- it's getting kind of old, man. It's it's why God invented liquor. Yeah, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Well, again, thanks to our guest tonight, folks. Uh, that was Matt Zemick. Uh, like he said, look for his work there on his Patreon site, as well as uh, Accent on Tennis, and uh, also Florida Football Insider. And thanks again to all of you for joining us, too. For the Blayton Homers and Podcast, I'm Alan Kenny. Take it easy.